Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poritz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission, to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams, and with my coaching, help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. Again, that's 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press number one, I'll know you have a question. We also have a live chat room on the show page where you can feel free to join in and ask questions there. Okay, tonight... I am really, really excited. It is a privilege and an honor to have as my guest, one of my very first teachers in the world of transformation, personal development. Frederick Lerman was one of the trainers in the LRT, the Loving Relationship Training, back when I participated in this work for the very first time back in 1983. And there's so much to know about Frederick that only this show <laughs> will tell you. And actually, you're going to learn more about Frederick by looking at his Site www.nomaduniversity.com. Frederick Learman, are you with us? Yes, I am. Excellent. I am so excited to have you on my show tonight. Well, I'm excited to be here too. It's been quite a while since uh, since I sort of took a look at the world through this medium of uh, online live talk, and uh, it's always fascinating to me because I never know what's going to come up. And I like it when people ask questions that I haven't ever asked myself before. <laughs> okay. I can't promise I will do that, but we'll, 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 we will do. hope. They do. It's good. Uh, and by the way, one of the things about the fact that we're on uh, Internet radio is you are very far away from where I am. I'm in New York City. And I am in uh, right outside of Seattle, Washington. And uh, it's been a long trip. I started in New York. That's where I was born and uh, ended up here. And that's a story in itself. How did that happen? Well, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I lived in New York uh, until I think the, the, the final date of departure was 1977. But before that, I had started traveling and teaching as early as 1968, 69. And I used New York as my base. And then I was, for a few years, commuting back and forth. I had a, a home in Boulder, Colorado, and an apartment in Greenwich mm-hmm. Village. I went back and forth uh, two months, uh, or actually two weeks in New York and two weeks in Colorado. And uh, eventually my apartment in New York, which is a very charming place, which had uh, rent-controlled rate of $108 a month in 1977. I wish I still had it. (laughs) It uh, it actually blew up. Uh, I came back one night from one of my two weeks away, and uh, I found the door ajar. The lights did not go on. I grabbed a flashlight out of my suitcase, which I always travel with, and shone it into my apartment, and it looked as if my apartment had been the sort of captain's office, uh, captain's uh, room on an old freighter, which had sunk and been under the water for 25 years and had just been pulled up to the surface. There was all kinds of strange seaweed-like stuff hanging around. I, I said, I don't think I can deal with this tonight, so I stayed at a friend's house a few blocks away, and the next day found out that what had happened was apparently the old steam radiator had blown up. It was in the winter and had uh, turned the apartment into a sauna for about five days. 
everything was poached. Uh, my piano looked like a piece of ravioli. And uh, the only things that survived that event out of that apartment were a few paintings and most of my music. Uh, the music still has a strange sort of a mildewed odor to it, which lends it a kind of a charm. But <laughs> you can read it, and it plays fine. And uh, that was the end of my New York residency. That'll, that'll get you out of there. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. And uh, and then I eventually moved to San Diego for some work, uh, consulting with a an international fishing project about which I knew nothing at all. But I was working with them in terms of their money management questions and fundraising and other things having to do with uh, how to work together as a company. And then eventually I came up to Seattle to do a seminar, and it felt good. I liked it. Uh, I found that everything pleased me about the city, and my mind was very clear and my energy was high. And then I got on the plane and flew back to San Diego, and the moment the wheels left the runway uh, at the Seattle airport, I felt the energy drop back to my old normal level. I said, that's very interesting. I've never felt that before. So the next time I went to Seattle, I felt the same thing. And after three visits, I said, why fight this? My body likes it here. I think, I think I'll move here. And that's the reason I came up, just because it felt good. And I'm still here uh, after almost 30 years. Well, that's great. Now, years ago, I, I, I had on my list of like places I might live one day. Seattle was on the list, and I heard a guy on the radio was talking about Seattle. He said, if you look up rain in the dictionary, it says, it's see Seattle. Mm-hmm. Is that, is well, that, is, that uh, is actually a very clever ploy on the part of people who live here. Uh, it's a disinformation campaign to keep all of California from moving up here. Uh, and there's a T-shirt that they used to sell when I moved here. It said uh, Seattle Rain Festival, January 1st through December 31st. <laughs> the fact is that it rains much less in Seattle in terms of inches per year than it does in New York City. Really? We have a few months where it tends to be gray and sort of persistently kind of slightly foggy. We call it a dry rain, and, and you see very few Seattle people walking around with umbrellas. Almost never, because it doesn't it doesn't rain that often in, in a serious way. It rains a little, a lot of the time, but it also has a remarkable number of sunny days and very beautiful clear days throughout the year. So it it really isn't that rainy. And I found that when I was here, the weather was always great. And when I went away, I came back and people said, "Oh, you missed some really bad weather." I said, "Well, I'm sorry, I left. <laughs> I guess that's why the weather changed." Uh, well. Well, the campaign definitely worked for me because it, it knocked it off my list. Uh-huh. Well, uh, I always warn people, if you come to Seattle to visit, to see what it's like, I'm warning you, be prepared to move because mm. you might not want to go back to where you came from. And that's exactly what happened to me. That's how I got here. That's well, a beautiful thing. Well, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be very careful then when I come and visit there. All right. You've been warned. Okay. So, you know, anyone reading your bio on the Nomad University page will see quite a diverse fellow. I would call you a modern Renaissance man. We have like Tai Chi, music, language. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of these things that, that are who you are. Uh, well, I, I think <clears throat> what I've done throughout my life has been sort of in place since very early on, even as, as a, a young child, I would get very interested in something 
and immerse myself in it in a very concentrated way for uh, a couple of months or a couple of years. And I know that my parents watched in, in dismay as I went through planning, first of all, on being a, uh, a jockey, right? When I was like uh, six years old, I started riding horses, and I said, this is, this is the life for me. And um, I learned everything I could about horses and riding, and uh, by the time I was seven or eight years old, I was, I was actually a riding instructor at certain camps. So I learned a lot. But uh, then I grew too tall to be a jockey, so that that was over. And overlapping with that was an interest in birds. I, I became a sort of a junior Audubon Society uh, ornithological person, and I, I kept track of all the birds that I saw, and I walked through Central Park two or three times a week and saw a remarkable number of different species for Manhattan. There's quite a lot of bird life there, or at least there was back then. Mm-hmm. And little by little, I went through these various uh, interests. I remember I, I got fascinated with Sherlock Holmes. I read almost, I read all the stories, except that I was interrupted because one day the book disappeared. That was a big mystery. It was a big, heavy, hardcover book. And it disappeared, and uh, it took me several years to solve the mystery. I found it behind other books in our bookshelf, hidden away, uh, because my father had hidden it thinking I was not reading any of my schoolwork at all. I was so into Sherlock Holmes that I was ignoring all other obligations. So the book disappeared for a few years till I found it, and that had an influence on my thinking, I would, I would say. And any number of things, skiing and all kinds of strange uh, uh, sports which couldn't be done in New York City, so they were impractical because there's no mountains in New York City. Finally, I got interested in music through the classical guitar, and that was the first socially acceptable obsession, I think, that uh, my family supported. So they said, oh, thank God he's going to be a musician at least and not go off on any of these other wild tangents. And that, that's what I did for the first part of my professional life. I played classical guitar uh, at a concert level. And um, it still is a very strong, basic aspect of how I uh, approach things in life. It doesn't matter whether it's something you can hear or something you can see. I think of it through a musical kind of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing consulting with a person or with a corporation, I always ask myself the question, how does this situation sound? Is it in tune? Is it in rhythm? Is it out of, out of touch with itself? As if it were chamber music. Mm -hmm. so the musical metaphor has been very useful for me. And uh, the, the Tai Chi part, which was also fundamental to the way I look at everything, happened because my younger brother uh, was studying Judo and then Aikido. And he used to come home and practice on me, which I didn't like because uh, it had nothing to do with whether I agreed to practice with him. He just grabbed right. a <laughs> painful lock and throw me on the floor and tie me in a knot and say, see if you can get out of this. And it was very demoralizing to have your little, your little brother uh, beating you up on a daily basis. So I said to him, what can I learn to protect myself from you? Uh, and remember, I'm a musician, so I don't want to break any fingers or do anything bad to my hands. So I can't do karate and be breaking boards, but I've got to stop you because you're a menace. And he said, I know just the thing. And he took me down to uh, a Tai Chi school, and I didn't understand it at all. It made no sense to me, but I gave it enough of a try uh, until I did understand it, and then I, I've stayed with it ever since because it was 
basically that I had a very great teacher. And I think I would have studied anything that this man taught, but he happened to be a Tai Chi master, and that's how I learned a great deal from him. He, he never learned English. <clears throat> he was an old Chinese doctor. But uh, as, a, as a human being, he was uh, one of the most remarkable people I've ever encountered. So that, along with the music and various other things that followed in the areas of psychology and then business psychology, sort of are the uh, architectural cornerstones of uh, the way my professional life works today. So they all really kind of come together, you know, even though it may not look that way initially. Right. They, it looks like they're not related, but because I do them all, they've become related in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I see them as being uh, different ways in. And I also look at people like that. I think that there are people who look like they're very different from you or me or from anybody else that they're around. But that doesn't uh, mean that we can't connect. And I always tell people that uh, no matter where you are, let's say on the earth, no matter where you are on the sphere, um, the center is equally close or distant to you. You know, to get to the center where we meet, you just have to go deep. Mm-hmm. If you go deep, that's where everybody has a common ground. And uh, I've always been able to, if I needed to communicate with someone, even if they were really different, been able to kind of use the Tai Chi awarenesses that I learned to go deep down and find the place where they start and talk to them from there, and then we come out with a resolution of something that otherwise would have been very hard to negotiate. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's a, it's a learnable skill. It just has to be pointed out to you. Mm-hmm. And when you try it out, you'll realize if we're communicating through our differences, we're actually speaking different languages, and we may not understand each other. But if we communicate through our common base, then uh, there's, there's a very different process that unfolds. So how did you begin to shift from all these areas into training and development? Uh, well, as a, as a musician, I had been teaching music. And uh, I confess at this point, even though I confessed it then very early, that my first professional activity was teaching the guitar. And uh, so I was self-employed right from the start. And I, my first student was my philosophy professor in college. So someone who was older and much more established in life than I was, somehow realized that I played the guitar, and he said, can you teach me how to play? I said, yes. And I realized all I had to do was stay at least two lessons ahead of him, and I could be of value to him. Mm. didn't have to have the whole thing mastered. I just had to know more than he knew, and I could show him what he needed to do next. So I found found that by teaching, I also learned a great deal. And I I advise people to do that. Don't uh, wait for the diploma until until you... start realizing that you have something to offer to people. The the, have you read the, um, the, uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People? I haven't, uh, I haven't read it in a long time, but I'm familiar with it still. I remember parts of it, yes. That was one of the things that he said. In fact, the, the name of the fellow just went, walked right out of my head. Stephen Covey, right? Uh, yeah. So the, the the one of the things you said is so the, one of the first things you should do when you learn something is teach it to somebody else. That's right. And that's that's well, the way to manage. In 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 some of my workshops, I actually have people uh, learn something and then teach it 
to each other immediately. That's the best way to anchor it. Because if you can put it in your own language, it means you understand it. If you're just repeating what you heard, it doesn't mean you understand it at all. And so, so what was next for you in, in this arena? Well, the, the way it worked was, I, I'm surprised I'm telling you all of these somewhat personal items, but it's all kind of like a past life for me now because at a certain point I stopped worrying about whether... Uh, whether I was impressing people at all or whether I looked okay. But uh, in high school, I was uh, sort of very much of an outsider in my own little school in New York. It was a very friendly school. No one was... Uh, uh, I was not the, the victim of the bullies, shall we put it that way. Um, but I, I certainly didn't do things the way everyone else in the school did. I didn't, I didn't approach life the same way. And I thought for at one point I said, either I'm completely crazy and weird, or they are, and I, and they're all happy, and I'm I'm not. I'm depressed. Therefore, I must be the one with the problem. So I began looking at myself as someone with a problem and trying to figure out what it was. And uh, as eventually what happened is, is I had a girlfriend who decided, yes, you do have a problem, and she was in psychotherapy. She said, this is just the thing for you. So I tried out being a patient in a Freudian therapy kind of a setting, lying on the couch, the therapist sitting behind me out of sight in the chair so that I could project my images of the world on, on this voice behind me. And uh, I tried it out for two or three sessions, and I said, no, I don't think this is going to work for me. Uh, this, this, this is, uh, I'm not feeling that this is going to be beneficial. But I still felt I had to explore. So I then went very methodically through all the major schools of psychotherapy and experiment with them and, and expose myself to their methods, Gestalt therapy, Jungian therapy, uh, something called psychomotor therapy, all kinds of new types of ways of working with the mind-body issues in oneself. And uh, some of these things were very good and very helpful. Uh, and at a certain point... I think uh, this was by the time I was 22. Uh, I had pen I put a lot of time into these uh, pursuits and spent a lot of money relative to my young age and low mm -hmm. income. Mm. I was and, thinking uh, about that, but I wasn't going to say anything. Was, yeah, but uh, I, I was teaching guitar and you know mm -hmm. making it just squeaking by every month, breaking even, and spending all my extra money on self exploration. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually in Berlin, Germany. I remember it very clearly. And I was sitting there on a beautiful day. And uh, I, my girlfriend from the States had come to visit me there. And it was, a, it was a perfect spot. And I said, you know, I've asked myself all these deep philosophical questions, and I've worked out the answers to a lot of them. And I'm sitting here in Europe doing something that I only dreamed of 10 years ago. And I still don't feel like things are okay. I've got all the answers, and I'm not happy. So I said, I must have, I've arrived at where I set myself to, uh, to a point I was trying to find. I've found it, but I think I've come to the wrong place because I'm still not happy. So mm. I said, let me, I have to go off in another direction. And so the next three years were kind of wandering around without any particular understanding of what it was I was trying to find. And then I ran into Tai Chi. Uh, I ran into uh, 
energetic approaches to medicine and to the mind and the body because that was that was not um, not yet very established in in the mainstream American life and uh, I followed the uh, the work of Wilhelm Reich uh, the psychotherapist who was the third in that that group of Freud, Jung, and Reich. They went off in three different directions. So both Jung and Freud, uh, both Jung and Reich studied with Freud, mm. and then they went off in their own directions and did their own unique kind of work. The the Reich work was accidental for me. I just happened to pick up the book and read it. I had never read a book uh, about him. I knew nothing about him. And within about 20 pages of this book, I said, why didn't anybody ever tell me about this? This is really important stuff. So that set me off in the new direction of seeing the energetic basis behind all phenomena. And I would say that the unifying principle for me that tied together everything I had done through my whole life was an interest in energy and an interest in movement and motion. Music is the motion of sound and the emotions of energy coming, the energetic emotion coming through music is something that affects your body. Mm-hmm. And so all of the everything that we see and perceive is energy in motion, and that was the thing that I had always been fascinated with. So uh, that can, has continued to expand and to include more and more disciplines and languages and uh, different types of applications right up to the present day. Now, when I was, um, I guess it was in 1974. I had several students, both in Tai Chi and in guitar, who were kind of following the trail that I was uncovering. I was chopping through the underbrush and making a trail, and they would follow me down that trail. Anything that I found that was interesting, I would say, take a look at this. It's probably worthwhile. Read this book. Go go see this film, whatever it might be. One day, a student of mine said, uh, there's a lecture that I want to go to that I can't attend. I have to be out of town. Can you go listen to it for me and tell me what it was about? And uh, that's the the reason I went to a lecture on uh, financial psychology, really. Otherwise, it never would have caught my attention because money was the last thing in my mind throughout those years. It was a necessity, but I didn't really want to think about it very much. And I went to that lecture, and it was the first thing I heard about money that really made sense. It had to do with money as energy and how people run it through their lives and how, how it controls them based on unconscious factors that, uh, that have nothing to do with money but express themselves in how money affects these individuals. And uh, that was the beginning for me, and I began to test out these ideas. They worked very well, and suddenly I was no longer just breaking even. I... I was able to increase my income by a factor of 16 to 1 in one year. In other words, the money that I made in the 12th month after starting these new principles was 16 times greater than the money earned in the first month of that year. And it wasn't because I was working harder or spending more time. It was because I was using my energy in a way that benefited more people. And uh, that began to give me some insight into how to how to use money in a way that was ethical, philosophically, uh, I would say, true, and uh, that wasn't just a survival activity that had more to do with creativity. And that's been the basis of my, my work since then. Going back just a second, uh, the who was who the person who asked you to go to this course? 
Well, he was a fellow named George, <clears throat> who was an art director at NBC. <laughs> and on my CDs, uh, the, the course uh, Prosperity Consciousness, I do talk about him as an example of someone who applied some of these principles and uh, actually made uh, turn, turned lemons into lemonade. Uh, it's an interesting story, but but he was the one who asked me to go to that course and. If I hadn't done it, I have no idea what I'd be doing today. It would be very different. But I was very much influenced by the discovery that money was actually the neutral interface between so many different aspects of life. So I, I would like to say, George, wherever you are, thank you for yes, that I, request. I, I, I hope he uh, ran across my course and found out that I talked about him. I've lost track of him, but... Uh, uh, if you listen to the course, you'll hear all about the exploits of George. Uh, I mean, that's this, this, this seminal moment without which you and I would not be speaking. That's right. That's right. And and also the, the relationships course that you took was intimately involved with the same philosophy because the, the money principles that I was <laughs> learning were things that came out of studying people's relationships how they related to the world, how they related to their family, how they related to to their uh, intimate relationships, how they related to uh, society as a whole. These are all relationship dynamics, and the relationship with money is one of the most important ones because that's what causes most stress for, for the average person. And uh, people think that uh, they have to have all kinds of prerequisites in order to have a good relationship with money. It's it's really much more internal than it is external. And you don't have to be like anyone else in order to succeed. If you use your own natural tendencies appropriately, then uh, people will want to exchange something with you for your time, for your energy, for your uh, for what you produce. And it's all about exchange, just like breathing is exchange. We breathe in, we breathe out. It's healthy. But most of us go through life holding our breaths, not really breathing fully. That has nothing to do with money. That has to do with fear of life. Mm -hmm. And those two things together get hooked up in the brain. And uh, a lot of people are afraid of too much life, and in the same way they're afraid of too much money, but they don't realize. <clears throat> That's why people who win the lottery, statistically, um, they get these millions uh, or hundreds of millions of dollars sometime, and then... Uh, Usually within two years, they've lost it all. That's the, that's the average statistic on that. Why is that? Everybody wants the money, but once they get it, they feel they can't really control it or relate to it, and they, they balance the books and get back to their normal state of stress and effort mm -hmm. uh, rather than accept what they really thought they wanted. And that's why the, the course I teach is called Prosperity Consciousness, it's not money management. Money management mm -hmm. is part of it, but if you don't have the consciousness of it, you will never be happy no matter how much money you have. So, so, it, so it, how it, much it, do your inner thoughts then have to do with your outcomes? Uh, they they uh, can't be separated. They really can't be separated because even if you're a very, very dynamic, clever person and you manage to make lots of money, if you're not... Uh, clear and uh, shall we say unconflicted about that you have to be have to be in step with your own success you may have a lot of money but what you'll do is you'll balance the books on another aspect of your life you'll you'll uh, 
have relationship stress or you'll have health stress uh, so that you don't get to a, a situation too often where everything is just great and you feel good. See, most people think, wow, this is so great, it can't last when they, when they achieve a new level of, mm-hmm. of success or happiness. It's so great it can't last. Well, that's not a very good thought to have. In prosperity consciousness, once you, once you reach that insight, you know that the nature of things is such that if you say, I feel fantastic now, so I know I'm going to feel even better soon. See, if that sounds like an odd thought, it's because the habit of struggle and survival has been predominant in your subconscious. But the optimistic approach is much healthier. And I don't mean false optimism, hoping that the, you know, the meteor is not going to fall out of the sky on your head and you know, just hoping that it's safe to go out. I don't, mean, I don't mean like that. I mean really feeling that you are safe in the universe, and that's a very rare thing and, and does take some work. If you grow up in modern technological society, uh, there's, there's an overriding neurotic uh, factor in everyday life, and people are operating on fear most of the time. And that's what causes stress and, and uh, makes your body not work the way it wants to work and mm-hmm. keeps you from staying young. And uh, finally, it uh, sabotages you. So it's a very wise thing to start with yourself and then work outwards rather than start by trying to get money. And if you get the money, you're going to be okay. It works better the other way around. What's the distinction, for example, between positive thinking and and having the kind of inner thoughts you're talking about? Well, in the true sense, this is positive thinking. But positive thinking in a mechanical way is less effective. It does work. You know, if you say, I can, I can do this, I can do that, I can be a success, that's better than thinking I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. But a, a uh, more dynamic way of bringing these uh, thoughts into alignment uh, in a way that is not just superficial, is to look at the resistance in your mind to accepting those thoughts. So when you say, I am smart, then you want to pause for a moment and listen into the silence that follows that statement and listen to the voices in your mind saying, what are you talking about? Who do you think you are? You're not smart. Mm-hmm. I can show you lots of times when you've been really stupid. Look at all the mistakes you've made. See, that chatter in the mind is there. And so by simply whitewashing the thought over it, saying, I'm smart, I'm smart, I'm smart, that doesn't erase the graffiti underneath. So the tool is to use the positive thought as a lens to look deeper and see if your body accepts this on a cellular level or whether it it says to you, um, oh, you're just fooling yourself, but, you know, Get away with it for as long as you as you can, but realize somebody's going to catch you someday. See, that, all that crosstalk is is latent in almost everybody, and so where you have a, a movie like The Secret or the book that that preceded it, um, all of those principles of attracting success, all of those are true, but it's like having a car without knowing how the engine works. You can drive it around, but if it breaks down, how do you fix it? And so the, you need to have the same kind of knowledge about the workings of your mind. And the way I, I was taught this was very, uh, very practical, very practical. And uh, 
I think that, that all of this is good, and society has moved a lot since uh, 1974 when I was first exposed to this particular approach. <coughs> Much more mainstream, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's still not as complete a, uh, a tool as it, as it really deserves to be. Yeah, it's definitely become much more. I mean, when I was first introduced to these concepts, uh, going back to 1983, I would think most of the people uh, in my life who were not part of that looked at me kind of, you know, like the the, the tilted head dog look, you know. Mm-hmm. And today, uh, and partly thanks to people like Oprah, I I, I would imagine. Yeah. It's it's a conversation that at least we, has now been opened in, in much many more people. Yes, and and it's it's actually popular culture. I mean, Oprah is a great example of someone who's doing magnificent work in the best way possible and telling the truth about it. And you know, she's she's walking her talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are hanging on to Oprah. <laughs> Trying to, you know, oh Oprah, please rescue me. Please talk about right. my book. Please, please <laughs> give me a television show. Please come to my house and bail me out. The bailout mentality is part of the problem. Right. And uh, so it's a paradox. And you know, people say, well, who should listen to this prosperity consciousness course? Who needs it? And I say, well, do you use money more than twice a month? If you do, you could probably benefit from listening to this course because money is going to be around in your life all the time. I mean, if you're living on a mountaintop without any stores or any, just in a community of birds, bees, and uh, other natural people, no, you wouldn't need to worry about money. It would all be just I'll help you and you help me. But uh, in society, that's not very convenient anymore. It's too complex. So you've got to learn how to use money in the most efficient way uh, and uh, so that you don't have to be distracted by it anymore. That, that's the purpose of, of my approach. And I think that's a key word, the distraction um, that money prov- money tends to generate because of all the things attached to it or needing of it, the you know the lack of it, the figuring out of it, all that all that stuff. If we if we weren't a distraction, what else might we we, we be doing? That's right. And the people that have, let's say, I mean, and I've worked with all kinds of people at every level. I've worked with people who were born with more money than, than most people ever imagine or even think about. Mm-hmm. They were born with it. And they have a different kind of problem, but it's money-related. Right. Uh, there was a, a group of these people that wanted me to help them figure out socially beneficial ways to spend their money. They had plenty of money. They just felt guilty about it because... Mm. They didn't work for it, see, so they were guilty. That caused stress. And I don't think they should have been guilty. I was trying to help them to not be guilty because it was a wasted emotion. It just is an energy drain to feel guilty. Um, We could talk about that, the function of guilt, for a long time. But essentially, I would find them these projects where they could either help people or they could invest their money to create a result, a product, a, a program that would help a lot of people and would also return even more money to them so it could be expanded. I mean, it's, it's not just you invest your money and that's a, a favor you do the world. If you are a money master, you can do that. You can give away as much as you want, but at the same time, you can put money to work in such a way that it brings more money back and drives the car further down the road. And um, they would get right up to the edge of this group project, if it's a group of them, 
and they said, yes, we're going we're gonna to invest in this and we're going to help this inventor get this product out to the world. And at the last minute, they would freeze. They never went through with any deal ever because they would have had to give up their anxiety and their whole sense of themselves, which they started with as children in their house with wealthy parents who gave them everything and they felt guilty somehow because there was some cross uh, message in there. And it's not the fault of the money. It's just the way people relate to it that mm-hmm. produces these, these distortions of perception. So uh, tell me about your nomad university. When, when did that happen? Well, as a teacher, uh, starting in music and in other areas, as, as I learned more about psychology, it, that affected uh, a lot of my work, and I began teaching seminars in various things because the way it actually happened is I had a Tai Chi class uh, that I would teach, and when I would learn something else, I'd mention to them, I said, hey, you know, I took this seminar on, uh, on prosperity, and uh, I know it has nothing to do with Tai Chi, but uh, if any of you are interested, then uh, next week after the Tai Chi class, I'll give you a little talk on prosperity if you want to stick around, and how many people would be interested, so I got a good reaction, and so the next week, I gave a talk about prosperity to the same people that I was already teaching Tai Chi to. So it wasn't like a, a new lecture. It was like an extension of something. And, uh, and so my teaching expanded to start including more and more of the things I was interested in because everything that I learned that was useful, I ended up teaching. That led me to teaching in other types of settings, graduate school in Pennsylvania, uh, a very interesting school in Massachusetts, uh, Noma, uh, Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, which was really uh, a very interesting place. The first year that it opened was in 1974. I was there establishing the Tai Chi program, and uh, they had some great uh, philosophy teachers and great art teachers and a very interesting group of students, about a 1,000 students. But I noticed after a couple of weeks that even this great collection of self-directed students and brilliant teachers was being hampered by the fact that they wanted to be able to give degrees. They wanted to be able to give uh, bachelor and master's and Ph.D. degrees, and they had to conform to the standards of the state of Colorado and in terms of curriculum and in terms of exams and in terms of the hurdles you had to go through in order to get to the end of the course. And I saw that this had nothing to do with the process of learning. This had to do with the process of education in a formal sense and getting a piece of paper, which was a degree, which then represented you. It represented you. It had nothing to do with you. It was the piece mm-hmm. of paper that people wanted to see. So I said, you know, this still isn't going to work. And that's when this idea of Nomad University kind of formed in my mind. And it was a combination of all the things I had seen throughout different levels of education, right from from young children up to uh, later-in-life-type education programs. Uh, I saw that there was a common factor, and the common factor was a great teacher. If you have a great teacher, learning happens. It doesn't matter where it is. And so I tried to figure out, how would a school look if all the teachers were that good, and how could you guarantee it that it would be that good? And I realized, well, all you have to do is turn it around. Instead of having the, stu- the teachers be the authority and grade and terrorize the students, are they going to pass or fail that course, you let the students grade the teachers. 
The good teachers teach more, and the mm-hmm. boring teachers fail and go away and stop wasting your time. So Nomad University started on that one idea along with many others that came afterwards, and, and it uh, was tested. We had nine years of classes uh, around the world, and uh, the students loved it, the teachers loved it, and it worked really well, but it was complicated to manage. Uh, and so it's been on sabbatical for a while, but we're, we're about to launch it next year because now the Internet has caught up to what we needed to do. And so we're not going to have everything online, but we're going to use the Internet in a way to augment the uh, face-to-face exchange between teacher and student. But the basic principles of NOMAD will continue, and uh, if people look at the website, they'll get a little bit of of the flavor of it, although there's a lot more that we didn't put up online yet until we get the the fully functioning website fully designed. And And do you you get that piece of paper from uh, NOMAD? Uh, <laughs> no. What we say is, is, you know, we don't give degrees. Um, okay. uh, but if you have a degree, we don't discriminate against you. Oh, okay. Ask, you know, just check it at the door. Pick it up when you go out. Okay. We don't want to know about who you who you were. We want to know about who you are. And uh, there are a lot of people with degrees who can't get jobs, you know. That's true. Especially today in today's economy. So uh, the, having the degree is not a guarantee of, <clears throat> you know, the of a successful life. It's something you can do, and certainly in certain fields, like engineering and medicine and physics, it's probably very good to get a degree so that you don't inadvertently blow up the whole city. Yeah. You know, but and when it comes to human skills, teaching, writing poetry, um, sort of doing analytical work uh, where it involves working things around inside in your own perceptions, Mm-hmm. Then, then I don't know that the university and the degree programs are the best place to be. Well, maybe not a degree, but how about one of those nice certificates suitable for framing? Well, let's put it this way. We do have a degree program, and here's how it works in Nomad. You have to decide what you want your degree to be in. Mm-hmm. You have to decide what the requirements are to get that. Then you enroll a group of your peers to sort of monitor you and give you feedback about whether you're doing okay by your own uh, pre-described standards. You can select from the faculty those advisors, but you have to sell yourself to them to see if they find you interesting enough to, uh, you know, teach you things. So it's a a graduate program to get a degree in in NOMAD. Uh, And... Uh, then at the end, uh, the degree uh, will look very good on your wall because we intend to have, uh, you know, actually haven't had anybody get through this course yet who really wanted the piece of paper. But if they want a piece of paper, they'll get really nice paper. They'll probably get vellum, which is the old style, and it'll have calligraphy on it, and it'll have gold dragons flying across the top, and it'll look really, really good. Uh, and it'll say Nomad University and the date, and that'll be easy to read. But if you get close enough to actually read the the body of the text, and most people don't go that close to the degrees on the walls of the people that that they uh, check the degree for, you know, whether it's a lawyer or a doctor. Mm-hmm. If you read the fine print, it's going to say this piece of paper entitles you to nothing. It is simply a an acknowledgement of a self-directed course of education and development. Uh, which you have undertaken, uh, you will have completed 
the goals of this course when you have embodied the following ten characteristics. All this is in very small type. And it says, number one, to be happy at least 90% of the time. That's the first requirement. That's a great requirement. And then the next one is to be successfully engaged in a career which supports both you and the planet. And it'll go on, and the very last of the ten, the, the ten uh, uh, requirements, and you can, you can adapt these requirements yourself before you start, but the last one that I suggest is to be, able to, de- to be able to demonstrate at will the ability to dematerialize and rematerialize your body. <laughs> then you have mastered it. Until then, you're still a student. Uh, <laughs> and and then it says this faculty and administration of Nomad University stands behind you and salutes you and, uh, uh, you know, wishes you good luck. <laughs> That's definitely, I definitely want a piece of paper like that on my wall. You know, I have to tell you, I, I, many, many years ago, there was, a, uh, there was a Star Trek store in New York, believe it or not. And uh, I bought exactly two things in that store. One of them happens to be a, uh, a quote-unquote degree, a diploma from Starfleet Academy. Right which I have uh, framed on my wall under some other real things. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe, you know, when you said that people don't read the fine print, it, it, people are looking at it, wow, you went to Starfleet Academy? And I, you know, come on. But it does look good on the wall. That's right. That's right. But that's, that doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't know? guarantee I anything. I don't, I, and I don't know how to beam up yet either, so. So you know, it's it's we're all works in progress, and and the universe is the school. So when I say nomad university, uh, I point to that word universe. That's what the university is, and we're just nomads mm. going going through it. See, most universities uh, of the traditional sort in the, in Western culture, and I've I've lectured at some of the oldest ones, like the University of Bologna, which I think is the earliest university in Europe that's still operating. I've talked about Nomad University there. That was interesting. But uh, most universities are set up sort of like uh, fortresses, like castles. Mm-hmm. It's a military kind of thing. You have you know, inside the university and outside the university, and there's a wall around it. Harvard is set up like that. Mm-hmm. Columbia was set up like that. And uh, it's two different worlds. It's the university, and then there's the real world outside. And you go to the university for four years or six years or seven or eight years or however long, uh, learning everything, and then you're back in the world and you don't know what's going on. You don't know how to function because you've been in a very unusual, unnatural kind of a setting for so many years, going to classes and you know, uh, uh, studying like crazy for exams and trying to read too many pages every week mm-hmm. to be able to digest them. And it's a high-pressure, very unhealthy type of a setting. Not all schools are like that, but many of them are. And uh, so then you get catapulted out into the world, and you don't really know what you're doing for quite a long time. So many people graduate, and they stay in the university, and they become professors uh, because that's the world that they're comfortable in, that they don't get the confrontation is a little uh, less uh, alarming. But... uh, Nomad University, by contrast, imagine instead of being like a, uh, a fortress with a wall around it, like an army camp, think of it as like a starfish. It has a center and it has arms projecting out. And when you go to a class at Nomad, you spend some time with a teacher who's fascinating and uh, inspiring. 
And uh, just as I was as a child, when I saw people do something really well, I wanted to be able to do that. And that's mm. what got me going. You know, when I saw Sherlock Holmes solve those crimes, I wanted to figure out how to do that in life. And if, if you uh, go to class, this is just a kind of an abstract model of you go to class, you sit there, you get a, a whole download of new ideas, information, and inspiration. And then instead of going studying for an exam, you get ejected like a fighter pilot out of the out of the school and you parachute back down into the world into new york city or wherever you happen to be and you start applying the new knowledge and when you've tried it out in real life then you come back and take another class that would be the best way in, in principle and nomad is designed like that it's very very uh borderless and we just i describe it as a big universal tent you can come in any side, you can go out any side, mm -hmm. you can talk to people inside the tent, it's kind of a special uh, neutral spot where you can, uh, you know, be yourself and let other people inspire you, and there's three rules which govern the conduct within the tent uh, and within the university space, the Nomad University space, and those, these rules do work, I think, for most situations in life. And the first one is uh, observe the local customs, mind your manners. And the third one is clean up after your camels. <laughs> Everybody followed those rules. I think life would be pretty pretty nice. Well, I, I have one like that in an organization I'm part of. Where we always say, "Leave the site better than when you found when you came in." Yeah, the site better than you found it. Exactly. This is just the normal courtesy of nomadic culture, where people move across the land. They take what they require, and when they leave. The land looks like no one has ever been there. The Australian Aboriginal tribes are like the the primary example of this. They've been in Australia for forty thousand years, mm -hmm. and we know this because their paintings are on the rocks. But most of the places that you try to find traces of of the uh, Aboriginal tribe having moved through, you just can't tell at all. They don't they don't leave any marks on the landscape. So, uh, Frederick, you have a training coming up in New York City at uh, the end of October. I wanted to yes. talk to you about that. Surfing the Economic Tsunami. Yes. Uh, uh, that, that title is chosen with uh, very specific intention. <laughs> uh, whether I think most people are aware that, that there is a tremendous amount of uh, turmoil going on in the financial world and I mean the whole world, not just the United States or the stock market or Wall Street. Uh, there is a great deal of instability and unpredictability right now because the systems that we've been operating under are no longer secure. They have become dangerous to themselves. And so uh, it's like the ocean. Some days the ocean is calm, and some days the ocean is very wild and stormy, and rogue waves are flying around and can turn your boat over. So uh, if you're out in the ocean of money, um, you can either be terrified and, you know, thinking, I've got to get to the shore and get out of this terrible place. The people that are not like that are the surfers who say, oh, big wave, let's go out and ride the waves, because for them, this is the most exciting thing. It's counterintuitive to go out when you see these big waves coming in on the north shore of Oahu. I've been there. I have a friend who has a house looking right down on Pipeline, the majors, one of the major surf breaks. And so there are a select few among the surfing uh, community who are the big wave riders. And everybody's kind of like 
worships them because these are people who are in a transcendent mode. They're not just people looking for danger. That's not it. They're looking for the high that they get when all that power moves underneath them. Now, right now, when when the waves of the financial transformation, which has already started and is kind of unstoppable, I think, at this point, start coming across the planet in massive form, um, there are going to be a lot of people who are just going to you know, try to hide. But uh, I think it's much safer for you to uh, have some knowledge of how to go with the wave and understand that the wave is not bad, the wave is not out to get you, the wave is just energy in motion. Mm-hmm. And if you instead of fearing it, let it teach you, then it will give you a free ride, and that's how you end up walking on water. These are all pictures, but what I want to do in the seminar is give people the tools to be able to uh, decode this situation as the news unfolds in the newspapers, on television, on the net every day. There's an awful lot of financial jargon running around, and it seems to be a secret language. You know, I don't understand everything that physicists say to each other, everything that chemists say to each other, nor did I understand what bankers say to each other. But now I do know what they mean because I've done a little bit of self-training in this. And uh, I've spoken to some very major people in the financial field about what I see, and they agree completely. Just two nights ago I, I talked with someone who is a, uh, an advisor to one of the largest corporations on the East Coast, and he knows a lot of the major, the presidents of the major banks. And uh, he knows them personally. And I said, what do they think of all this? And he told me, and I said, well, here's what I think. What do you think of that? And he said, exactly. That's exactly correct. That's what's going on, and most people haven't the slightest idea what's happening under, under the words on that newspaper headline that they're reading. So uh, to me, it's a very interesting thing, and it's not just for people in the financial profession. It's really for everybody, and it's like uh, you know, basic, uh, basic swimming <laughs> in the financial <laughs> river. <laughs> I wish I had learned all of this when I was in high school. It would have been just as applicable for me at that age <clears throat> as it is now. So it's, it's not too early, and it's not too late to learn this. Uh, and if, you're going to, if your business is going to still be there and your job is still going to be there in a couple of years, you need to know how to move with the current because it is really all going to change uh business as we know it is in a major transformation and it can't be stopped can you give me an example um well let's just say like right now we're talking on the web Mm -hmm. right now a hundred years ago uh we wouldn't even have had a class on the telephone uh, we would have had to have a meeting in the town hall, right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, all of, for 100 years, all of these things have coexisted. We've had books which you print and buy in a bookstore and sit down and read. But uh, right now, we're running out of paper and trees uh, on one side, and on the other side, we're having uh, you know smartphones and iPads and uh, places where you can go out in the middle of nowhere and instead of going to a bookstore, you can have a whole book come to you right out of the airwaves and read it. So what do you think that's going to do to the publishing industry? What is it going to do to the hotel industry? Are they going to still have conferences in hotels or is it going to be mostly online? Uh, There's all kinds of things happening. So you need to move with this um, 
one of the uh, quotes that I like, and I don't, I'm, I'm, I always like to remember who said things, but I've learned this so long ago, I really don't know who said it first. But he said, uh, in in a changing world, he who stands still moves backwards. And so that again is another kind of surfing type of a of, a, of an idea. You can't stand still on a surfboard. It's very hard to do that. Mm-hmm. But if the board's in or a bicycle, you know, it'll fall over. But if you're going forward, you have some balance because of the forward motion. So in the same way, I would say that it's not just that jobs are being outsourced in, uh, to to other countries where uh, the salaries are lower and the available workforce is is more plentiful. It's not just that. It's that the way we used to do things and the priorities we give to things is changing. So even even those jobs may not exist in a few years. And I say a few years because what used to take 50 years to happen now takes five. I mean, you, you look at the uh, change between uh, the 78 RPM record, the 33 and a third RPM record, mm-hmm. and then the cassette tape, and then the... CD and the DVDs and now MP3s, 4s, and so on, it is changing more and more rapidly. And that's a function of the great increase in the knowledge flow as a result of of, uh, digital technology. So, you know, you can go back to the land and and that's fine. But if you want to stay in the city, you you better, you know, (laughs) change vehicles and as quickly as possible uh, to keep up with the... uh, evolution of, of the uh, means of communication. And so how can people sign up for this course? Uh, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure. I think that the best way they can do it uh, is to uh, go to uh, liveyourbestlife.com. Mm-hmm. Take a look at that website, and you will see a one-page, very, very minimal uh, description of what this course will be like. There's going to be a lot more in it than what you see on that page. It's going to be very practical. It's not just going to be theory. You're going to come out not terrified of what's coming at you, but actually eager to jump on the wave and to do it in your own field and in your own life and, then ha- and get your house in order so that, you know, if surprising things happen, you'll be, you'll be in pretty good shape because the past is not going to work anymore, so you can't go back to old solutions. Uh, and if you if you look at that page, you will see uh, everything except the location, because I don't think that's been decided, but the date is October 30th, and all the contact information is there. So live, uh, www.liveyourbestlife.com. Yes, I'm taking a look at that now, and it's October 30th, and there's a early, couple of early bird incentives, so definitely go check out that site. And we're about, believe it or not, about done with our show. We have about a minute left. So I would like to thank you so very much, Frederick Lehrman, for spending an hour with me today. Well, thank you. It went very quickly. and uh, I've always worried, am I saying too much in too short a time? But people seem to survive. <laughs> come at the other end and say, well, I don't know what he said, but uh, no, it was all, I think I know. Good. That's okay. <laughs> it was all good. Uh, anybody wants to learn more, of course, they can go to your website at www.nomaduniversity.com. And, again, you can go visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com. Follow me on Twitter, another modern thing, at twitter.com slash coachandrew. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will be back next week with my guest, Jane Tabashnik.
I thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. Good night. Good night. Thank you.